0: Welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is Nick Thompson. Nick, as I think most of our listeners already know, is the CEO of The Atlantic. Uh, and we'll go through your bio, but it's it's pretty insane. It was I, I read the entire thing from like your speakers bureau. It was <laughs> like, wow. This was like, people must pay you like a million dollars per speech by the time they're done reading that.
1: Yeah, a little more than that, actually. Yeah, I think
0: five. Five million seems fair. Yeah, it's good. Um, so you do so many different things. I kind of have four macro topics I thought we could talk about. But the, the first one is not actually the Atlantic. It, it's the videos you make the most interesting things, <laughs> in Okay. which are great. And obviously, as, as you know, sort of a, a people in my world like them quite a bit. Um, I guess here's the question, which is, one, how do you pick what the thing is going to be? And what's the criteria? Is it just literally what interests you intellectually? Is it what you think will have a big impact Financially, is what you think is societally worthwhile? Like, How do you decide?
1: It's mostly what interests me. It's very spontaneous. I feel like part of what makes it work and part of what the audience likes is that I don't prepare, and I do them in one take. And so the general philosophy I have is that as soon as I have an idea that crosses the threshold, right? Mm -hmm. I've read a story, I've listened to a podcast, I've had a conversation, and I've learned something that crosses the threshold that I think I should make a two-minute video and put it on LinkedIn and Facebook, I just record it wherever I am. So yesterday I was running across the Brooklyn Bridge, and I had a thought. I propped my little camera up on the, you know, on the pillar like a little rock, a little jutted out. That's why kind of off angle, bad background, and then record. That actually it. makes it better
0: because it, it's spontaneous. It seems and it more has real, and, like, and it is yeah.
1: genuinely real. And I feel like as soon as I start faking it being real, and I start doing multiple takes or planning it out or you know, doing it every day at the same time, then it's less real. And eventually, it would lose its authenticity and it would also start taking up a bigger part of my life. So, it's
0: so just- how, a, a, after the fact, how much do you then track your take to see if your take was right and how whatever company idea, whatever it is, did or didn't do? I will
1: very little. I go in, and I, um, I check the comments, and I respond to people. Uh, I don't have a spreadsheet that tracks how well they do. I have no idea.
0: And if, if I had to say, okay, what are the f- five most interesting things in tech in the, you know, hundreds of, of takes you've done now or all of that, what would a couple come to mind?
1: Well, you know, I think um, the ones that I did explaining how ChatGPT works, right? Explaining mm-hmm. how temperature settings work, explaining... There was one where... I was having a conversation with someone and we said what exactly was this trained on and i was like i don't know and they were like i don't know and then we're like let's look it up right and you find the paper and then i explain that i just filmed the video right afterwards those did extremely well um, the i think i think the ones that do the best are when there's something where i've had a real conversation about how something works and i explain it or why something has happened And here's the best explanation I have about why something has happened, and here it is.
0: Well, and also, and this is part of also what I like about The Atlantic as a subscriber, reader, or whatever it is, is, you're explaining something, so it's clearly your point of view, but it's not super prescriptive in the sense of, you know, you must think this way, and if not, you're an immoral person, right? One of the things I like a lot about The Atlantic is, you guys do that a lot less than The Times and The New Yorker. I almost can't read The Times and The New Yorker because I don't like being told how to think. Yeah. I feel like every single article tells me how to think. Um, less so with you guys. Not, not completely not, but, but, but much less so. Is that deliberate? Is, it, is, that a, is that a conscious choice on your part as to how you want to kind of pursue journalism?
1: Definitely. I mean, I, so I'm the CEO. I don't control the editorial side. The editorial side reports to the board. I report to the board. So I actually, I read the stories same time you do. Um, but I can say that the founding mission of The Atlantic was of no party or clique, right? It was very much build the best writers' collective in the world and explore ideas. And even at the beginning, right, it's founded as an uh, abolitionist magazine, and that's the animating idea, you know, back in 1857. But it also runs stories counter to that during the Civil War. I mean, it runs stories critiquing Darwin, supporting Darwin, right? And it goes back and forth. And you can see that same thing today where you're running Ibram Kendi and John McWhorter, right? And where you're running stories that are on, you know, not every element of American politics, but in a much wider spectrum than many other of our peer publications.
0: Yeah. And also, I would say a little less of, you know, this is the party line. And if you do, which would also say to me that the business model is different now in part because you have an owner that can afford to have a, a different kind of business model. Well,
1: but I that, that, that I don't think is true. Okay. So our owner is very clear. The mandate that I got when I came on board was to make the place profitable. So the, the magazine is owned by Lorraine Powell Jobs, yep. and she has lost money on it, as has been reported in the press, and has no interest in losing more. Not because she is going to go bankrupt, but because she thinks that it's important for media to be financially viable, and she doesn't like being an ATM for journalism. And so when I was hired, it was very clear, you have to figure out a path to make this. You don't have to make it money because she has enough money, but you have to have it not lose money. So we do have a different business model. We do have a very specific business strategy, but we do have the constraint, which I think is a useful constraint, of needing to be break even profitable.
0: Got it. So, it, you know, when we talked a second ago about sort of how prescriptive the Times and the New Yorker, I mean, it seems pretty clear to me that let's just take the Times and Fox News as sort of the two top in, in this field, which is um, you can make a lot of money by appealing to the aggrieved, right? Whether it's the 16% who are the Times readers who are angry that they're not the 1% or the, you know, rural guys in Indiana who are laid off, you know, for Fox News. And clearly, while I would say that's bad and irresponsible journalism, um, it does seem to generate clicks, subscriptions, everything else. That's not your model. So how do you get to, to break even?
1: OK. So I want to say two things. So first And want, you could
0: also disagree with my thesis,
1: too. No, I don't disagree with your thesis. Your thesis is fascinating, but it raises two totally interesting questions. So let's start first with the question of whether strict partisanship is a better business model than not strict partisanship. So when I started this sort of stage of my career, um, when I started to transition from being a journalist and an editor to being a journalist and an editor and a businessman to being a businessman. It was back when I was at the New Yorker, and I, was in, um, I took over the website, ran the iPad app in about 2012. And one of the things that was most interesting to me, we built a paywall, and we built a business model built on subscriptions, moving from an advertising business to a paid business. Yeah. One of the things we found is that people subscribed when they read a variety of stories, right? When they would read politics and then fiction culture, and then fiction, science, and then business. They wouldn't subscribe if they read all in one category, right? Because our, if they read only our political coverage, they hit the paywall, eh, I'll go to political, right? They read only our fiction, eh, you know, I'll go to somewhere else, right? You had to kind of feel like you were reading across, you know, yeah. and across opinions, across categories, right? You had to feel like there was something distinct. I had thought at the time that that would lead to, in politics, right, sort of a similar view, that you want to have a wide variety of political viewpoints. And that would lead to more subscriptions. And in fact, business would align with sort of diverse perspectives. During the Trump years, I don't think that was the case. It seemed like the places that drove the most subscriptions were probably the ones that doubled down on the same idea. And that actually scared me.
0: Yeah, I mean exactly. What, what, what you're describing sounds great to someone like me, but I still subscribe to The New Yorker, and it's 11 years later, and that's not the magazine that I see.
1: And so then the question is, and I don't know the answer to this, I don't know whether in the long run certainly during the Trump years, right? And you've seen this at the Washington Post, where subscriptions went way up. They doubled down on you know, a relatively, relatively narrow perspective on the Trump presidency. Um, and they did extraordinarily well, but it hasn't done so well afterwards, right? Whereas the Atlantic, broader perspectives, and is actually doing pretty well afterwards. The Times has added like all of these different categories. So it can have a narrow political perspective, but it also has cooking and sports. So I actually don't know the question of whether, in general, It's better to have a narrow set of political ideologies in your coverage or whether it's better to have a broad set. And there are all kinds of other factors beyond business, like who you can hire and all that. But um, it's one of the most interesting open questions in journalism. So
0: on on that, right, because I at least like to think, I'm sort of tickled by the image of Solzberger sort of laughing all the way to the bank, which is the more and more and more anti-business they become in their writing, the more and more money he and his shareholders make. Is that... Am I giving them too much credit for a business strategy as opposed to just the kind of people that go into journalism are these days very self-righteous and preachy, and he doesn't have the balls to tell them to stop, or is it actually their model?
1: Um, I don't know. What? Okay, so I um. Don't know all the people they've hired. I don't want to make judgments on all the people they've hired. So I'm going to. So it's a podcast. I'm neither gonna, to make. Judgments. I'm not. I'm neither going to confirm or deny. <laughs> irresponsible judgments. The yeah. supposition of the question, but the, you know, do they follow a specific strategy because it's business imperative or because it's what the staff wants? It's probably a mix of both. And then the interesting question is whether, the business imperative will hold up and whether the times would make more money by having a broader political perspective and hiring. more right-wing reporters having a sort of a a different way of approaching tech journalism, all those critiques that you hear, my suspicion is that there are periods of time where it's good to have a narrow perspective and there are periods of time where it's good to have a broader perspective, and that in the long run, the broader perspective will win. So one of the things that I was really interested in is during those Trump years, all these publications are churning out anti-Trump stories. That's then tuning the Facebook algorithm, the Google algorithm, and so particularly the Facebook algorithm, where you're going to lose, people who are kind of turned off by that are going to stop following your page. People who are excited by that are going to follow your page. The era is going to end, and you're going to have a Facebook following that is much narrower and constricted right. and tuned to a particular set of stories. So I think in the long run, having a broad, ideologically diverse set of political viewpoints instead of topics you cover, and then covering them in a large, diverse, open-minded way will be better, but at given moments being extremely partisan in narrow ways will be better.
0: So then, like, you know, you you mentioned kind of cooking and sports, and I don't know how this turns to a podcast about the the marriage of the times, but (laughs) we'll go with it. Um, And by the way, look, I was an athletic subscriber before. I thought buying it was really smart, especially because the Times sports section had just fallen apart completely. And I'm a terrible cook, but I do use the cooking app to try to cook for my kids on occasion um, badly. Um, But other than those two areas... For example, when I read tech coverage and venture coverage and business coverage, which is a world that I should know something about, it is totally infused with political ideology, even when it doesn't necessarily need to be. Um, And as a result, I just discredit the validity of the writing completely. Um, That's just purely circumstance, or that's deliberate?
1: I don't think that's deliberate. I don't think that the—I mean, I I think a couple of things are going on, and I don't want to speak to the Times directly because I don't know know all the reporters and there are other editors, but, you know— I don't think there was ever a deliberate strategy to be, for the media in general, to be anti-tech, anti-business. Clearly, there's a perception from the tech industry that there is that change. So yeah. why is there a perception from the tech industry that there is that change? I think post the 2016 election, I think that the media in general soured on tech, right? There is a sense that yep, Facebook talked sure. about Trump and... Number 2, I think that Twitter created a lot of really toxic dynamics where everybody in tech thought that all journalists were represented by the six most vocal ones on Twitter, yeah. and all journalists thought that venture capitalists were represented by, by Elon Musk by Bellagi, <laughs> right? Like right. and so suddenly it's like all of venture capital is like all journalists are so and so and all right. journalists are like all venture capitalists. Like this. this is the way Twitter works, right? It's one right. of the fundamental societal problems of Twitter is that yeah. Whenever two groups become opposed to each other in any way, you look at the worst tweets of the loudest person right. and you believe that's everybody.
0: So hold on. If, if I gave you a magic wand today and said, you can, and if you want, can be anonymous, anonymously or anonymously, just wipe out Twitter. It no longer exists and it will never come back in its form in any other way. Would you do so? <laughs>
1: um, probably not. Because I think that I think that Twitter has... The capacity, OK, I think I think we may be heading towards the perfect state, right, which is where Twitter is much less powerful and there's an opportunity for other platforms to rise. I think that Twitter sort of captured like a local minimum, right? It wasn't as though Twitter was inevitably going to be as important as part of the political conversation. It just happened, you know, like water pools at a certain spot. And yeah. uh, it just so happened that Twitter took off, became enormously powerful, and then did tons of damage. Also wonderful things, but also tons of damage. A better Twitter, which is possible or not possible <laughs> under Elon, doesn't seem like we're
0: well... Or better Twitter would be...
1: A better, smaller Twitter... If we
0: got rid of Section 230, you'd have a better Twitter. That would solve your problems, or a lot
1: of them. Yes and no, depending on how you get rid of Section 230. But in general, I would say that a weaker, better Twitter and alternatives is the best solution.
0: Got it. Um, Do you think that any of the sort of Twitter alternatives, like Mastodon, are feasible competitors, or do they just devolve into the same problem? Because at least for as long... As the leaders the listeners are sick of hearing me rant about Section 230, but the argument I would make is it is in the same way that you can't expect politicians to not act in their political interest at all times because they're never going to defy human nature, same thing is true for the platforms, right? So for as long as eyeballs determine profits and revenue, and for as long as negative content drives eyeballs, which is it may be a sad truth, but it's still a truth, um, they're always incentivized. To make sure that the platforms are pretty negative, um, only when the financial incentives change, because now all of a sudden they're getting hit with these multi billion dollar lawsuits all of the time, kind of like tobacco in the 80s, does their priorities change and as a result their content moderation changes. Um, and I don't see any would do that for as long as Section 230 remains on the books.
1: So I w- I'm going to leave Section 230 out of it and go after the initial part, which is I think your proposition is totally true. I think that as long as Platforms rely on eyeballs and attention, and as long as negativity draws eyeballs and attention, you get platforms drive negative ways. You can change that in a couple of ways, though. You can make it so that platforms don't rely on attention, right? The revenue could be subscription models. The revenue could be some other business model, right? There are all kinds of other ways that you can build business models that create different incentives. And then secondly, you can create platforms such that the algorithmic structure doesn't you know, support negativity, right? And so you can make those two transformative changes. And you do those at the beginning of a new platform, then you can have a platform that is totally different incentives and doesn't inevitably go towards negativity.
0: But OK, so sure. And look, again, you're you know, Lorraine Powell-Jobs. You could see a world where she says, OK, I'm going to create a Twitter version exactly like that. And she can afford to do so. But for a normal, and Twitter wasn't until recently, a public company where you're just being driven by the analyst reports every quarter, and it's just about maximizing, you know, revenue and profit. Can you really do that when you know that the other model ultimately will reward you far more?
1: Well, you don't necessarily believe the other model will reward you far more, and then it also depends. I mean, again, I should I should point out here that I have a slight conflict of interest, and in that I am. In the process, as has been reported in the press, trying to construct just such a model, right? And we are building a thing called Narwhal, which is a- Oh, that's your sweatshirt.
0: I was wondering what that was. Yeah, Narwhal. No. Okay. So
1: Narwhal is an alternative social media platform trying to drive people to positive conversations. And the idea is exactly what I'm saying. Can you engineer completely different constructs for how you weigh conversations, how you onboard people, how you reward posts so that you're rewarding posts for quality and for engagement and for actually, like, People feeling like they're learning something from it. If you construct a platform from the ground up, can you reach a different point?
0: Are you using it once it's up and running? Let's assume it's working in the way that you want it to. And yeah. there's sort of not a heavy emphasis on negative content. Is it because of stigma and social norms that you've created on the platform? Or is it because of the algorithms? Both. And the it's AI?
1: both. You create social norms, right? from the very So what we're trying to do, and will it work, will it work? I have no idea. We're very early, right? We have like... You know, we have a beta. We have a couple thousand people using it. We have 500 conversations. They've been remarkably positive. But like, we've got a tiny team. You know, we're very, very early. It's very inchoate. It is working, however, in the sense that our conversations are positive, right? And they're working because A, you know, when you're onboarded, very specific messaging, nudges you. B, all the conversations are sorted by positive engagement. Every comment is sorted by positive engagement. And then C, the other thing that's happened, the thing that changes this and turns it upside down is generative AI, right? And so, we are using it in a couple... right now, we're using it in one obvious way, which is you, you know, we'll invite you onto the platform and you can see, which is we're taking every conversation as soon as any new person joins, we're summarizing it for a person who joins, right? So you can come in, you can see what people are saying. But I think the possibility of using AI for good as you build out, as people build out the new platforms, whether it's an our wall or one of the 900 other alternatives, there is a distinct possibility that we could have a very different kind of social media conversation and social media platform in two, three
0: years. And, and so if I were to write on our wall, I don't know, all Republicans are evil and white supremacists, what, is the, what does the platform do to my comment?
1: Um, depends on the context, right? If you just yeah. write it like completely off topic, we'd probably <laughs> remove it. You know, we're using AI to determine whether something is spam, whether something is toxic. Um, my hope, I mean, the other thing that would happen is... Because of the norms and the culture we bit on the platform, like no one would say they learned anything from that comment. No one would say it was clarifying right. and it would just disappear over time, right? It would just get pushed down and be ignored. But that's not the case with Twitter. That's not the case with Twitter. In fact, Twitter right. will reward that. Right. Right? Because of the contract of the Twitter, because of the norms, because of the whole way the system was built, right? And Twitter didn't have to be built that way. And in fact, you know, depending on who the next CEO is, you know, they could change it completely, right? It wouldn't be that hard. Well, I guess it would be it would be hard. It wouldn't be impossible. To identify what are the most ta- toxic forms of Twitter, like what are the sort of the habits and the norms that exist on Twitter. One of which is saying things like that and knowing you're going to get a positive reaction. You could change it, and you could totally change it. And You could just weight the algorithm differently, and have a much healthier platform. Now there are trade-offs, right? Narwhal is making very specific trade-offs, right? Some people probably don't like all the nudges and like the little thing on the sideline. Then you know if you started to write, all Republicans are nasty and toxic, or all Democrats are nasty and toxic. RAI would say, hey, do you really want to post that? We've identified that. Even before you've posted it, we would be like, and some people probably don't want grandma there, right?
0: Do you know what, the, Hugo, do you remember, and this may be before your time, but I used to make up, uh, fake ads for this podcast where I would create a fake startup and then and then write an ad as if it were real I remember there was one called stop you schmuck which basically did <laughs> exactly that which are you really sure you want to post this wait yeah. did, did, did these go anywhere did other people see them or they're just for people they were in the on office? the podcast and then I just kind of started so, doing too many other things to keep, keep yeah that right. was before my time yeah
1: yeah so that's what we're doing we're like that's gonna be, and we won't completely stop you or right? you want to have a value of free speech but like we care about the norms. so we'll tell you not to do that Right. Um, and maybe that will, like, people will find it so annoying, and narwhal well, will never grow, but right. someone is going to figure this out. Right.
0: And then I, just just uh, on the 230, and I'll, I'll let it drop, which is there's the toxicity of Twitter, right? Yeah. So, like, for me, it's, I don't want Twitter because if I did, people are just for no reason that I can tell just claiming that I'm a horrible human being because I helped legalize Uber or, you know, I support capitalism or tech companies, whatever it is. The real harm, I think, becomes, like, you know, Hugo and I both have teenage kids. Yeah, how old are they? Uh,
1: 14, 12, and eight.
0: Okay, so you're like, so we have sixteen year olds uh, that go to school together, and like, the shit on Instagram, how to cut yourself, how to purge, yeah. all that kind of. That's the stuff that really, like, you want to beat up on me on Twitter, like, all right, whatever. But like, that's the stuff to me that that requires policymakers to step in and say, like, this is just not going to stand, and I just don't think all. Facebook will ever change their behavior, Instagram will ever change their behavior unless all of a sudden it becomes illegal, and they're either going to lose a lot of money or have some sort of criminal process.
1: Wait, so what is your proposed change to 230? It's to allow tech companies to do it. There are two ways you can remo- change it. It removes
0: the liability. I would just remove the liability
1: protection. So suddenly they're liable, so suddenly they have to like go all out to knock this stuff away. Well, you know
0: what happened is, so plaintiff's lawyers, who are bad in many ways, but I think in this case would be actually quite useful and excellent at this, they would go fucking nuts, right? start suing like crazy. Some juries would react some way, some would react the other. Appellate courts would sometimes overturn stuff, sometimes sure. sustain it. Over a period of time, jurisprudence would emerge that would say, effectively, this is the American legal system view as to where what liability constitutes and what it does not constitute. And that then becomes the practice of the platforms lived by.
1: Right. And then how do you construct such a new rule in a way that doesn't just lock in monopolists with powerful lawyers, right? Like the way European regulations have just massively yeah. advantaged Google and Facebook.
0: Yeah, right. you know, that's, look, I, I, I get that. But I would say, and this, this for example, one of the answers is, is much more aggressive antitrust prosecution, right? So I've been, you know, the FTC has been kind of using me because I'm like the one guy in tech and politics willing to say publicly that we should break up all of these companies. Because my view is, as an early stage investor, I can't look at anything that's arguably competitive with Facebook or Microsoft or Amazon or Google or Apple because there's, the, the companies have too much you know, monopolistic power to just shut it down one way or the other, which means I can't risk my LP's money and that type of thing. So I would say maybe if you could pair it with could have much more aggressive antitrust action, of which, look, there, there seems to be bipartisan support in Congress for that because Americans, for different reasons, hate the platforms. Um, yeah, but...
1: As any? Those companies seem to be pretty solid to me right now.
0: Yeah, oh, they're all totally solid right now, but um, if they start facing... Like Microsoft, that was a serious challenge that they faced in the late 90s, right? Late so 90s. If, if something like that were to happen again, and, and I would think you'd go after Meta because A, they're sort of the weakest of the giants, they're the most disliked of the giants, and... There's a natural breakup system of, of Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp into just separate companies. Um, so I, I, maybe the answer is you have to pair those two things. No,
1: there's actually kind of I mean this is a fun topic because it's like the monopolistic abuse and the clarity of it is like inversely proportional to how much the companies are disliked. Where like you can make a pretty strong case against Apple, but more or less people yeah. yeah. like Apple, right? Like you have a strong anti-Apple case and like yeah. tough politics. Facebook, it's like what do you do? You're hiving off Instagram, you're hiving off Oculus, right? It's a little bit more of a complicated case. Um, you know, where's the actual consumer harm from connecting Instagram? It's not as clear as the actual consumer harm of letting Apple have monopolistic control of the App Store. So right. anyway, complicated politics and legislation. Yeah,
0: I do think, and we'll switch topics a second, it, if you're Congress and the White, if you're McCarthy, Schumer, and Biden, and you say, okay, we got to get something done in the next two years, right? Like, you know, what's right. the one area where maybe there is some common ground, I do think it comes into that privacy Section 230 antitrust world. And I think that's why Biden's State of the Union kind of focused on it to a certain extent, because it's the only thing where I think there is sort of consensus, on both, even if for different reasons. Well, also
1: beating up on China, consensus. you can do that, too. I mean, you're going to yes. have consensus there.
0: Well, and then TikTok kind of fits back into that. It fits back it's, in, it's, but in reverse, right? right? Because you're
1: beating up on China... But if you want to beat up on China, you actually want to help Facebook versus TikTok. So you kind of have to choose which lane you want.
0: Well, unless you just ban TikTok entirely. What do you think will happen?
1: So then you beat up on the American tech companies and ban TikTok, which helps them immensely. they probably take that trade. Right. right? (laughs) Right? And then you're beating up on China, hurting them, (laughs) but ultimately their growth is better. Is that how we end up?
0: I mean, you know, I, I. I kind of thought, you know, I guess you always. Everyone gets in trouble when you say anything nice about Trump. But like, I thought his original idea to sell it to American companies made a ton of fucking sense, right? Um, and I don't, you didn't go into it because nothing Trump ever did could actually be executed. Right? Um, why isn't that the right answer?
1: Why isn't that the right answer? Um, it seems a little. I mean, look, this is not my. I'm still not sure, right? To me, the most interesting question is the actual risk of TikTok. And it seems to me that the actual risk of TikTok is not spying and user data extraction, which seems fairly minimal, and like they're not getting that much value. The actual risk of TikTok would be weaponization by the Chinese government to manipulate American politics, either in specific ways or in general ways. Like, you know, just make cutting videos more popular in America and less popular in China so that, like, America tears itself apart. And the question would be if there's any evidence that that is happening, and if there is, then we have a huge national security problem. So, I still haven't decided whether… I, a TikTok is certainly a potential huge national security problem. OK, so let's assume the answer is yes. Let's say that we've fully investigated it and we've decided it is a huge national security yep. problem. Then, is the correct solution to sell it to an American owner? It's actually not a bad solution.
0: Yeah, I mean, if, if it's an American owner that has, you know, Accountability to the U.S. government because they have got various ways that they're regulated, or, or they're a non-Chinese owner. You just have to
1: separate it out from ByteDance. Like it, you can no longer have this company that is essentially like a huge part of American civil society that is controlled by China. Right.
0: I mean, the problem is not problem, but like you know, we uh, when you mentioned kind of European tech regulation, I think in part maybe because of that. There is no, like, European equivalent to buy, you know, tech time.
1: I mean, so one argument against it would be, to me, right, the U.S.-China dynamic is you know, the biggest risk for the next five to ten years. Yeah. And there are areas where, you know, we're adversarial to China. There are areas where we compete with China. There are areas where we cooperate with China. The area where you potentially can cooperate with China is on tech, right? And if you could, my view is that if you actually want to improve the relationship, figuring out ways to get more tech integration is the way to go. And so suddenly you hive off TikTok, they retaliate, like they kick Apple out of the country. Like, is it net, net something that you want? Maybe not. So I would be trying to think of it. I mean, right now we're obviously heading completely the opposite direction. Right.
0: Although, let me push back a little bit in that for for 10 years, everyone said, well, you know, right, capitalism always kind of breaks down barriers. And so if Apple and Bloomberg and Uber and these companies can succeed in China, and none of them fucking can. right? Yeah, none of them I mean, you,
1: can. And in fact, it got worse, and Xi Jinping yeah. got like more, more settled. In it. And that, that argument clearly did not right. win over that time period. It doesn't mean that the opposite, which is like, let's try to cut off their chip capacity. Let's ban Huawei. Let's potentially ban TikTok. It doesn't mean that the opposite will lead us to a positive outcome either. But it does mean that the sort of you know, Tom Friedman argument from many years ago yeah, is, not,
0: the is yeah. not actually going I to I think the McDonald's thesis has now been de- debunked. Right. Probably Ukraine and Russia both at some point had McDonald's. China, right? Yeah. 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 Um, well, so then on on that, now we're just all the place. But so let me, let <laughs> yeah. me give you another
1: another. Th- I, you know, one of the things I want to do in Narwhal yeah. is a conversation map where you like take conversations and you draw lines from like how you got from one to the other. That and was... How we like, I know we traveled to Section Two Thirty and then we traveled to China and now here we right. are. But it'd be fun to like go back and right. map how, how did that
0: all happen? So so, yeah. so here's my next thesis, which is um, there's. The one thing where the pause, you, know,
1: yeah. you know where we lost it? You were asking me about the business strategy in journalism. I was like, well there and then the, how the Atlantics plan to make money. And I was like, right. I'm gonna answer part A, which yeah. is sort of the complexity. And, we never got to part B. and then part B, how we're gonna make money. And then so I took part A and we traveled that route to China. Right. And I wonder if I'd taken part B where we would be.
0: Here, so I'm gonna give you well here, here let's, let's make this interesting. I'm gonna give you my th- last thesis around this whole area. Yeah, and then you're gonna answer it and then work in somehow part B. <laughs> amazing, amazing. that's a challenge. All right. So I'm not a conspiracy theorist at all, but it seems to me that the, the, the CHIPS Act and the $42 billion being spent on microprocessing plants in the U.S., and a lot of activities already happening before that as well, um, is an implicit sort of acknowledgement of, like, look, if China invades Taiwan, the main thing we need at Taiwan are these chip plants. And if the chip plants aren't as important to us anymore because we have enough of them now functioning in the US, our strategic imperatives go down considerably. And we're not sure we want to have a conflict with Taiwan when we can just build the chip plants somewhere else. And it's almost like if there is one place where they're tacitly, even if they're rattling the sabers publicly, where I think maybe behind the scenes they're kind of saying, like the US is saying, right, wait five years let us build all the capacity here, then do what you got to do, and we're not going to fight you. We'll, we'll condemn you, but we're not going to fight you. Um, is that crazy, or does that make sense to you?
1: I think it's half true. Okay. I don't think there's any... I think the US government is fully prepared to fight. I think that they're like increasing the submarine capabilities, because that'll be extremely important if China invites Taiwan. I think the US is fully ready to fight. I also think they think they might lose, and so I think that losing a war in Taiwan, or eventually having to back away, would be why you might want to have TSMC building plants in Arizona and building other plants here. I also think that, in general, the CHIPS Act is, A, to prepare for the potentiality that we no longer are able to get chips from TSMC, but also just to kind of slow down China's technological
0: rise. Yeah, no, I I think that that, that does make sense. But if you think about, like, look, wars tend to succeed or fail partly based on sort of their political support at home, right? World War II, everyone was for it. Vietnam, everyone's against it. No one ever talks about Korea, so I don't know where the fuck they were on it. I don't see where the political support in the U.S. is to justify a draft or American soldiers getting killed to defend Taiwan, or for that matter—and this is the same reason why I haven't supported U.S. troops going to the um, Ukraine—yeah, do I believe in Ukrainian sovereignty? Sure. Do I worry that Putin will kind of keep going? Sure. Um, Am I willing to risk the potential deployment of a tactical nuclear weapon um, in order to defend Ukrainian sovereignty or Taiwanese sovereignty? No, right? So do you really think that the political support would be there for the US to to actually have a war with China over Taiwan?
1: Well, okay, so it wouldn't be it depends, right? Like if it's a full-on nuclear war where troops are engaged, almost certainly not, but that takes a lot. I mean, we're a yeah, year because... into the conflict in Ukraine and like we still haven't deployed troops and the war is still going on. So if China were to start invading Taiwan, the US, you know, presumably has a whole bunch of scenarios and again, I'm not a strategic planner, but my guess would be like my sense is that the Defense Department thinks that China's going to invade in, like, 2026, 2027, or is that that's the likely moment of invasion and that they're preparing for it, and so the Defense Department is plan, making a plan that you know, involves trying to figure out the capabilities where they would come, how the allies would play, but does not involve a large US force deployment. Um, if there were a US, large US force deployment, would it change the politics in this country? Absolutely.
0: Right. And what if it's purely, OK, there's not oh, wait, a- Wait, but now I can get this yeah. back
1: to The Atlantic. So one of the yeah. interesting okay. things with journalism <laughs> <Yeah>. will be- <laughs> If this happens, like one of the things that changes the business model is when there are huge external shocks to the news environment, can you A, then meet the moment, and then B, build up like a structural business model that lasts? And so that's one of the things that we did at The Atlantic to try to bring us to profitability when COVID hit, drove a whole bunch of subscriptions. And now right. part of the business model is dealing with the churn of all of those subscriptions and then also dealing with advertising in a recession environment.
0: Okay, so for a media outlet to profit from a crisis, does it matter if you are kind of the more broader, neutral reporting of the Atlantic or the sort of diverse reporting of the Atlantic? Can, can we change or,
1: profit from a crisis to profit from providing the proper information that helps the public get through a crisis,
0: which sounds a little better? Profiting, all right, profit by providing <laughs> the proper information to help the public get through a crisis, right? Thank you, Bradley. Um, if, if, if you had a choice of, okay, now a media outlet with a diverse viewpoint or a highly polarized Fox News, New York Times— um, who does better in that situation? Um,
1: well, I mean, I think the Atlantic. You know, during the COVID outbreak, you know, it's interesting because the Atlantic did actually publish a wide, a somewhat wide variety of views on COVID that all were quite successful, right? So we had a, you know, we were very early. We you know, published a story saying, you know, everyone will get the coronavirus. We had Ed Yon's reporting, which was the you know, absolute best in explaining the stresses on the healthcare system. You know, we had the COVID tracking project tracking, you know, providing information that the government wasn't. And then we also had like, very strong arguments saying that you know kids were masking in school too long. And so there was like a there was, we never had a you know we never we never had such a wide spectrum that we were like arguing that you know don't take your vaccines. Um, you know, we were within a, a band, but I think within a very interesting band. And I think that if you look back at the coverage of the Atlantic, it's you know extraordinary in that. There was a wide range of debates on topics where it actually is a real debate, like should kids have masked in school? That's a complicated one, right? You know, should you take the vaccine or not? That's not as complicated, and there wasn't a wide range of it I mean, there are different questions about who should get the vaccine first, and those are all kinds of interesting debates. So, and then the Atlantic did extremely well from it. So I guess that suggests that the optimal position is to be open-minded on the questions that where you deserve to be open-minded and you know, focused on other questions. Um so I'd like to think that the Atlantic's perspective was an optimal perspective. You know, it's an interesting question. If you imagine a war in Taiwan, like the Atlantic would probably cover it where you would have, you know, again, I don't know. I don't control editorial. I don't hire the writers. I don't have any say over it. And what I say probably, you know, in fact, has zero influence. But I would imagine <laughs> oh, backfires.
0: that. backfires. Potentially backfires. that guy, yeah.
1: <laughs> you would imagine that the sort of, you could have it, you could have publications that are like full on, Warmonger. You could have publications that are finding every possible excuse to not go in. And you could imagine a publication, I would think The Atlantic would have some realist people saying, well, you know, it's a good cause, but it's not in our strategic interest. You could have some people saying we need to support democracy to the end. You could have some people saying this is all folly, right? And I would hope right. we would have that wide range of opinions, but I don't know.
0: Yeah, I, I would say at least compared to your, your competitors and peers, my experience is that you would. All right, so yeah. my last question is actually totally separate from all of this, which is just... So you have all these other interesting things that you do, right? So you write books. You've done three acoustic guitar albums. You run competitively and, like, win races and set records and all kinds of stuff like that. Um, how, did that how does that play into your day job? Do you think it's all additive and kind of works together, or do you see them as just totally separate
1: things? Uh, they're additive. I mean, they're not all additive, and they can be subtractive, but I think that— um... The well, the, let's talk about the running in particular, because that's the one I think about the most. So I, I am, you know, a serious runner, I run spend a lot of time running, and in a way that's distracting, right? On the other hand, I do believe that discipline is cumulative, right? All of that research that you know suggested the sort of the ego depletion theory of discipline, which is if you are disciplined in the morning, you'll be you know slack off in the afternoon, I think is false. I think yeah. if you're disciplined in the morning, you're disciplined in the late morning, if you're disciplined in the late morning, you're disciplined in the afternoon. I think it builds up. I mean maybe there's a point where you crack. And I think that Being focused on your running, like, so this morning I went out and I, like, spent a certain amount of time doing, like, a relatively hard workout at Prospect Park and then ran into the office. You know, the discipline of planning for that doing that, I think, actually sets me up for the day and gets me in a framework where I'm able to be more disciplined in my job. Certainly, there are days where I run so much that there's less time or where I run so much that I'm exhausted, but I think, in general, it's um, positive. There are other things that could be distracting. Like it's unquestionably the case that it's, you know, it's hard to be both heavily engaged in Narwhal and heavily engaged in, in the Atlantic. And I'm very specifically not the CEO of Narwhal right now. Right? We like Rafi Kikorian, who's the head of engineering at Twitter. He's my co-founder. He's the CEO. He's, he's all in on it. I'm all in on the Atlantic, and I'm helping out where I can on Narwhal. So obviously, there are ways you have to adjust your life and adjust your time. But I do think that in general, having a hobby that requires discipline can be very helpful to your life and job.
0: And do you get questions from like Norwell investors that say, OK, Nick, you know, we totally get the value proposition that you bring to the platform. But you're running the Atlantic, and then you do all these other things. You're running around, literally running around, and you're playing guitar. You're writing books and all this other shit. I'm not playing guitar so much anymore. Okay, but, you know, do do you get that, which is, like, are you sufficiently focused? I get that from my LPs for the fund yeah, um, because I do a lot of different things, and and I understand where they're coming from, and I make the same argument that everything is additive, and I think especially at least a lot of the stuff that I do because it's pretty public, I would say – this all generates deal flow and validation. You know, yeah. I, mean? I have I have my case to make on it, whether I'm right or wrong. Um, do you have that issue from your investors?
1: So the issue does come up, and in fact, yeah. one of the reasons why Rafi has, you know, when when we started it, I was run, I was CEO of The Atlantic, and he's CTO of Emerson, and so we were both part time, and we were going out, and we're like, hey, we have this awesome idea. We've got this really good team. We've hired these brilliant people, and we've got an awesome concept. What do you think? And they're like, wow, that's awesome. Like. I'll give you money as soon as you're both full-time. Right. And it's like well,
0: I said that to founders. <laughs>
1: and I'm yeah. like, I can't be full-time because I'm CEO of the Atlantic, which you know is owned by Lorreen, who's the initial founder of Norwal. So it was a little bit after having a few of those conversations where Rafi and I were like, okay, well, eeny meeny miny mo, um, and you clearly Rafi could, I mean, he's a he's a genius, he's a great manager, um, he's built our AI integrations. Like it's the right move for him to be CEO. So we made the decision in part because of this feedback we were getting. Um, so now Rafi's full time. The head of product is full time. The head of tutorials full time. The head of two engineers are full time. So there is a bunch of people all out, all in. They're compensated by equity. And I'm there. And I'm helpful. And I help with all the product decisions. And I help with lots of meetings. But there's no one who, if you're going to invest in Narwhal, you're not going to invest because Nick's putting 80 hours a week. And you're going to invest because Rafi's putting 80 hours a week. In, and Nick is helpful. So you, exactly. yeah, totally. That, that I should have anticipated, right? The funding community really does care immensely about the commitment of the people they're first introduced to the idea from, which makes a lot of sense.
0: Right. I mean, we had a, a call with another fund this morning. That we're talking about co-leading a, a digital health deal. And especially because it was it's a Series A deal, it really came down to, do we believe this particular founder is extraordinary enough yeah. to pull this thing off? Like. The idea makes sense. I can see from a regulatory standpoint how we can kind of open up the market for her. That makes sense. But it does come down to that. And he said to me, Well, she's also, you know, a Pulitzer Prize winning poet or whatever it is. I'd be like, eh. Yeah, whatever, right? You know, right.
1: Well, it's like wait, the way you assign stories when I was an editor, right, at the New Yorker or Wired, where there's some ideas where you'd assign it to anybody who is a competent writer. You'd assign it to anybody just out of journalism school. And there's some writers to whom you would assign anything, right? And so then the question is like that with this idea. like is the idea of narrow? We have some really interesting ideas and some really good concepts and some really good thoughts. But it's a very competitive space with a lot of people trying to do similar things. So you are yeah. betting on the team, and you're betting on the quality of the team times the commitment of the team. And so, yes.
0: Cool. Anything you want to plug? I think everybody should subscribe to The Atlantic. There you go. All right, Nick Thompson, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Brad. That was lot of fun. Thanks.